0: Hello SFIA Audio listeners, in this month's Nebula-exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. When it comes to conflict inside families and nations, we say a house divided against itself cannot stand. But what about a planet? So the last few episodes we were talking about what we should do if we encounter aliens or if it turns out we have the whole galaxy to ourselves, and a comment someone made was that if that turned out to be the case, no aliens, then at least we wouldn't have to worry about war out in the stars. Unfortunately, humanity has a long history of war and none of it with aliens, just ourselves, and often our fights aren't between nation and nation but internal conflicts and seems to be on a lot of people's minds these days too, so I thought today we would explore what civil wars in the future might look like, at both the planetary and interplanetary scale. We will also touch on the notion of conflicts inside space habitats, or even Dyson swarms, battles out in the void between stars, and even breakaway interstellar colonies. We want to discuss how those conflicts might evolve and how they would be fought, but first, we need to ask who is fighting them, and what the landscape and battlefield would be. Civil War and Rebellion is certainly a regular conversation in science fiction, it's the background plot of the entire Star Wars setting, both in terms of the Galactic Empire and Republic, and the Jedi vs Sith and Dark Jedi. Star Wars is the larger sci-fi franchise to discuss it but hardly the only one, and it's common in the fantasy genre too, as with Game of Thrones, as well it should be, as internal wars have been as important for shaping history as external conflicts, and that history and its interpretations offer endless realistic inspirations for fiction. But in terms of fictional looks at Earth itself and the near future, those conflicts don't always seem as well based in historical realism. They typically involve Mars or the Moon seeking to break away from Earth, and we should probably start by asking why there is always an assumption Earth is unified, and for that matter, so is Mars or the Moon, or some other distant colony. That seems a stretch in many cases too, as the asteroid belt contains around a million rocks that range from floating mountains to continents, all spread out over a distance considerably bigger than that volume containing Earth, the Moon, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. The vast majority of those asteroids are closer to any of those planets than to each other. So the notion that they'd have a lot in common would be like assuming every single one of Britain's old colonies, from New Zealand to Jamaica, would somehow feel a deeper kinship to each other than the homeland. Mind you, if it is an oppressive empire, it's not hard to imagine everybody getting together to rebel and then go their own way after they win, but while that's also common in science fiction, I'm not certain history provides many examples. As often as not, grabbing mercenaries from one corner of your empire to go pound another is a strategy that's surprisingly effective and does not result in them deciding to team up down the road, quite to the contrary, usually. So space is fundamentally huge and spread out, and various colonies aren't likely to feel any more connected to each other than Earth. All they really have in common is that they aren't Earth, and it would seem more likely a civil war wouldn't erupt between Earth and a colony than on Earth itself, with various factions here and in the colonies all taking sides, or trying for neutrality, as we'll discuss in a bit. A true civil war on a high tech planet could be the sort of thing that makes World War I and 2 combined look like minor conflicts, and was exactly what was so scary about the possibility of the Cold War turning hot, as a conflict between NATO and the Warsaw Pact was generally depicted as leaving a barren, radioactive wasteland populated by mutants and scattered and disorganized tribes of techno barbarians. There was a tendency to portray a nuclear exchange as fast and furious than done, but even a full-scale exchange would leave much of the population alive, probably most of it, along with their armies and guns, and while the assumption is everyone would go into shock and ask how we could have been so foolish, and focus on surviving rather than fighting, I think that might be a stretch. Likely as not, most of those nations would still be around, still have the same leaders, and where they didn't, They would like us not be replaced by folks howling for revenge and blood. Turning an entire planet into an endless line of trenches and bunkers really is doable, and indeed far more so in a space colony context. We tend to assume a high energy and high-tech society is also a fragile one, especially relative to the weapons available, but that's not automatically true. There's a lot of ways to toughen places up even to the point of being resistant to atomic weapons, as well as to make your economy and society sturdier too. Complex supply chains can be shortened, with options like 3D printers and superior automation, while even hearts can be hardened against the brutality of warfare, by everything from propaganda and drugs or genetic engineering, to simply having a society where everyone has radical life extension and mind augmentation and is just emotionally tough and resilient, to the degree that Job would be impressed by. That said, the immediate and lasting effect of a nuclear war tends to get wildly exaggerated in a lot of fictional treatments. You are definitely going into a cataclysm that makes economies collapse, but you could still feed a large population. Nukes don't despoil vast tracts of land the way it gets shown, and that's very repairable. However, a higher-tech civilization with cures for cancer and nuclear fusion is one that can sit around digging in huge bunkers with hydroponics for food and hidden nature preserves while maintaining populations of trillions on a single planet, all while World War I-style pirate victories like the Battle of Somme get fought every day, and tactical nukes routinely get deployed on the ground. Nuclear war on Earth leaving the place an obliterated and empty husk is a common story in sci-fi, as is fear of Earth, our lone homeworld, being ruined that way and instead becoming the neutral ground and protected world in a greater galactic empire. However, you really could have Earth operating as the capital of a vast empire while being built up like a mega bunker and having periodic and lengthy wars where nukes were flying constantly and billions of ground troops were getting fed into a plant-sized meat grinder, all while life mostly went on as normal. Not just in the wider galaxy but on Earth itself. There's also the robot factor, because just as a civilization with good genetic engineering and cancer treatments can't ignore a radioactive landscape, one with very good automation can ignore lots of the normal economic and attrition limits of warfare. Robots may be doing most of your fighting, but maybe as importantly, they can be doing most of your farming, manufacturing, bunker building, and trench repairs. In-between options are possible too. You might have brains in lead lined vats installed in giant battle mecha, or elite soldiers being mass produced Clone Wars style, though probably faster and more realistically by uploading human minds into android war machines and copying those over and over. In a civilization where everyone has a copy of themselves backed up or controls their warframe by remote, a frenzy of courage is an option which might also be achievable by advanced indoctrination techniques or drugs too. You add in virtual reality as a training route and it means all your troops can be elite veterans because they train ultra-realistically and just don't stay dead, even when you've nuked a place so hard and so many times that it glows in the dark. Also, welcome to Science of Futurism with Isaac Arthur, where we are known for looking at the bright side of the future, and not many things are brighter than an atomic bomb blast. Alright, so we've established you could have a civil war on a planet and still have a planet when it's done, but for a planet wide civil war to happen, you need a unified planet. It isn't likely you are having widespread use of WMDs unless there's only two sides either, as third parties aren't likely to get involved, and against the forced user if someone was releasing super plagues or using nukes. This raises the issue of wondering what on Earth would actually unify Earth, and you can make a pretty good case that nothing on Earth would since it hasn't happened yet and I'm not aware of any countries that include it as a piece of policy they're even seriously contemplating let alone pursuing. The usual assumption sci-fi of course is that it wasn't anything on Earth that unified it, but rather something off Earth like encountering a hostile alien empire or just a big scary galaxy full of civilizations that dwarfed us and similarly made our differences with each other seem tiny. Which seems plausible enough, though I suspect we could still find excuses to get in fights with each other even if our alien neighbors had 50 heads, tentacles for arms, and made Cthulhu look sane and friendly. All in all, it's not too hard to imagine us getting into civil wars, just hard to imagine us ever being unified as a planet in the first place to have some colony planet of ours try to rebel and break away from. Truth be told, I tend to expect that even in some future where there were multiple empires of hundreds of trillions of people claiming so many plants and space habs that they could fit a continent into their proverbial closet, that a bunch of them would still have their capitals back on Earth. It's much easier for me to imagine a future over the next several centuries where the solar system gets colonized by tons of groups and none able to individually claim bigger bits of real estate. Recent historical precedent is that you've got to be using and working a chunk of land to have a claim on it, and you can't just grab a small farmstead worth of cultivated land, covering a few dozen acres, and say you now own an entire state-sized parcel. Even ignoring that indigenous populations might live there, which for now at least would not be expected to be a problem we would face in colonizing the solar system, but might be an issue if we find little green men on Mars. Just to give a bit of an idea here, the European Union is currently composed of 27 member states controlling a land area of 1.6 million square miles. Mars has a surface area 35 times bigger than that, the Moon is 9 times bigger than that, Mercury is 18 times bigger than that, Venus is a whopping 111 times larger, so it is very hard to imagine people setting up colonies in the next few centuries that have some magic claim to territories larger than existing nations and that would stick for centuries to come. I can certainly see claiming whole asteroids or craters, but I just have difficulty seeing someone claiming all of Ceres or Vesta or the entire Aitken Basin on the Moon, which is a good deal bigger than the entire EU, by just planting a couple of domes and a few dozen astronauts there, and is still only about an eighth of the Moon, On Mars, Olympus Mons, the largest mountain in the solar system, is the size of Poland, and claiming it would mean you own just one five-hundredth of Mars. That to me seems like far more plausible claims by countries as they send their colonies. It's likely to be seen as needlessly belligerent to drop a colony within a few hundred kilometers of someone else, from another country, without them being okay with it as long as there's vast untouched regions, and that allows hundreds of independent colony sites on each major planet and moon, while at the same time, folks back here on Earth aren't likely to feel some country has a legitimate complaint for someone settling a thousand kilometers from them, given that it is a thousand kilometers from the border of Poland to Rome or London, with several countries in between. Especially when the colonies have hundreds, not millions of people in them. All of which tends to indicate that such wards will end up as collections of hundreds of different colonies, some cheerfully integrated into nations back here, some probably sovereign right from the outset. Outside of fiction I've never really understood why some colony of a few hundred on Mars, founded by the US or UK or whoever, would be thinking independence was a great idea, and probably a lot less so if their immediate neighbors are some other country's colonies, or some sovereign entity founded by some corporation, ideology, or theology that for some reason found setting upon Earth less desirable than the ruinous cost of an off-world colony. That tends to imply they aren't great neighbors, and it sure is nice to know you've got some nation of millions back on Earth willing to object if they do indeed turn out to be bad neighbors. Nor is some little colony of a few hundred or even a few thousand going to get treated like it was a new state in the Union. My little township of Plymouth, Ohio, named for the more famous colony a few states away, has a couple thousand people, and if the whole US population were divided up into similar bits, you would have 165,000 such townships, not the 50 states the US has or even the 3200 counties it contains, so these colonies aren't just magically getting statehood and senators or parliament members. To add to that mix, asteroid colonies could easily be claimed by a sole entity, especially the smaller ones that are tens of kilometers across, not hundreds, but they move relative to each other and the planets. We also tend to assume the future will be full of space habitats we build, as often as dome colonies on rocks, and those are mobile too. That's an interesting landscape at that point because we might imagine that the US or China or the EU circa 2300 AD was still around and had colonies, but the EU might have a dozen different regions of Mars that aren't touching each other and spoke different languages, and they might have a dozen O'Neill cylinders orbiting Earth and six or seven moon colonies of various sizes and a hundred minor asteroid colonies and a base on each of the Galilean moons of Jupiter but also a couple of the other minor moons, maybe one completely claimed by them. What are we looking at here? Is this another country that's part of the EU with a total population of a few million? Or is this a whole bunch of minor territories like so many European nations have or had overseas and administered? Is there any particular reason they would all rebel? I am no expert on that matter, and am not even sure I could point to the right island given an unlabeled map of the Pacific, but I don't recall hearing New Caledonia or French Polynesia were anxious to break away from the EU any more than Guam is from the US. Of course, the whole point of today's episode is that could easily change. But we probably need to be thinking of these sorts of breakaways in a similar context. Sometimes a civil war is pretty even in resources, sometimes it's not but is to at least an order of magnitude, where one side usually does have the bulk of forces but can't send them all in. An empire dealing with a breakaway colony can't send all its forces there to handle the situation, it not only has its own neighbors to deal with but also internal disputes. Great big empires tend to be glued together by exterior enemies and as often as not, they have internal factions who hate each other more than their neighbors and cheerfully align with them in civil wars. So again, we're getting to the notion that it isn't Earth versus Mars, but more likely something like the US forces its breakaway state of Armstrong or Muskland. And it isn't about who has more guns and troops, but how much effort can really be safely applied there, especially when dropping nukes or orbital bombardment isn't likely to be magically okay with India or Brazil or whichever country has a colony near that one. Same goes the other way, in Robert Heinlein's classic The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, we have a Moon colony feeling ill-used by Earth and rebelling, and dropping rocks on Earth down its gravity well. This isn't nearly as good a strategy as the book implies, but they're essentially repeatedly nuking Earth minus the radiation, and that's obviously not a viable strategy unless you're at war with all of Earth. If you are, well, you're in about the worst strategic position I can imagine, because while gravity wells matter, especially if you're limited to chemical rockets, if you can afford to move lots of people off Earth to other worlds, you can also afford to move lots of nukes nukes that can intercept and blow up those rocks, nukes that can toast fragile colonies, all mass-produced by the largest planet that isn't a gas giant and which already has a vast population and infrastructure. And a tactic like that is likely to be viewed as outright terrorism, which means all those other colonies, not just on the moon but up in orbit and over on Mars and Venus and Titan, and all those asteroids, are probably taking sides against you now, And not likely to be anxious to be seen as your ally even if they quietly approved of your activity. There is no scorched earth warfare going on in space, on the one hand it's vast and mostly empty, and most of that non-emptiness is lethal radiation. That's plenty of space for fleets to maneuver in and you would essentially have floating island fortresses moving around, the big space habs, which probably have meters of armor and megatons of ordnance, the moving and changing nature of space means besieging an enemy or striking at them isn't something where your train and third parties are static, and your attempt to launch a sneak raid or flanking maneuver might be interrupted by a new habitat orbiting into the area. With politics or paranoia, you didn't factor into things well, and so they signal the target or just open up with a broadside composed of hundreds of kilometer-long space guns, relativistic slug throwers, and anti-debris point defense lasers. Whereas they want some mobility for economics, station-keeping, and the option of migrating to a different orbit, your fleet by definition needs to be as low mass as possible to be fast and maneuverable, so they are always going to beat you on armor the way a bunker beats a tank or even a fighter jet. Also, everything in space is going to be armored against micrometeors and radiation and electromagnetic pulses, like solar flares, and thus aren't noticing even a large nuclear device unless it goes off within a few dozen kilometers, which is a speck of dust in the ocean. On the other hand, everything we build in space is incredibly fragile compared to the power scale of all the ships and devices. Some ship the size and mass of a 747, cruising by at interplanetary speeds, say 50 kilometers per second, has roughly a quadrillion joules of energy in it, the equivalent of 250 kilotons of TNT, a powerful nuke. So too, some orbital power grid designed to deliver vast amounts of energy to some future civilization probably would dwarf the 15 terawatts of electricity Earth currently uses, but our power grid generates the equivalent of that 250 kiloton nuke every minute and turned into a massive laser would be cutting some serious holes through space habitats Space ships, enemy missiles or asteroid strikes, and fortified positions buried in rocks. That same grid, composed of micro thin but enormous reflective sails and panels, isn't handling getting pummeled on very well, so all in all, if things go violent and escalate, it could make a hypothetical World War III look like a ballroom brawl. We can imagine that happening, even in something enormous like a Dyson swarm, where in the course of a few hours things go nuclear and then beyond. And indeed inside such enormous civilizations, a nuke blowing up a habitat of a million people every single second would barely scratch their normal birth and death numbers. In a civilization of ten billion billion people, a single death might still be a tragedy, but a million deaths isn't even a statistic. As to actually invading down a gravity well or into a rotating space habitat with ground forces or busting into some dome or ecology planet side, this is likely to make Normandy look like a field day even if it goes well. Again, the paradigm of all of the civilian architecture and infrastructure being ultra-fragile cannot be taken for granted. A classic motion dome that looks as fragile as a greenhouse and would shatter a shot with a handgun is not in the cards, and it's worth noting that not only do we have ultra-tough transparent materials, like the transparent aluminum of Star Trek, but our favorite supermaterials for building space elevators and such, graphene, is transparent, as of course are most ultra-thin 2D materials, and so is diamond, something we can now mass-produce cheaply in labs, and possibly soon cheaply enough you could have windows made of it. It's very easy to imagine panes of diamond with graphene layers in them and that such things might be no more expensive than polycarbonate or glass is now, in even a few decades. Aluminum is a good example of that. It used to be considered an ultra-precious metal till we learned how to mass-produce it. And again, we actually have transparent aluminum now. More importantly, though, domes aren't necessarily for people to live under. They're not even necessarily where you grow your food. You probably live underground in a natural bunker of thick rock, with skylight or windows made of your dome material, but with giant shutters where you seal up in case of a breach or fear of attack. Key notion, an energy-rich society that can afford to move spaceships fast and cheap enough for colonies to migrate populations or troops is one where a lot of normal building conventions disappear, and ultra-thick buildings aren't devastatingly expensive, and that's more than doubly true when you stack superior automation in there. Superior food preservation techniques can help there too, because if you can store food a very long time, then you can get away with bunkers and storage vaults that people can't retreat to that can still be pretty plush, Trying to evade something like that, endless miles of tunnels and bunkered up storage rooms and hydroponics and factories would be like some kind of nightmare for any classic infantry situation. In these kind of scenarios, it can seem like your brute force diplomatic options are limited to essentially embargoing a location, sending an infantry to seize it intact, which again would be a nightmare, or blowing the place up entirely, which is easier said than done, and also a nightmare, just of a different kind. But I think there'd be a lot of in-between options depending on the available technologies and how much people want to seize the place intact or avoid damaging it too much during the fighting, where things might not escalate. And we must remember the state of play, all habitats in space are at least modest spaceships able to be moved under their own power or by a tug. Folks needing new land can also build a new habitat or launch a colony spaceship to the interstellar depths and the trillions of stars of this galaxy, If you just really like your breathing room, while even a full Dyson Swarm is less densely populated than Earth is, as it's more like a fog of habitats around a star, and the outer solar system is orders of magnitude larger, even before getting to the Oort Cloud, which dwarfs our primary solar system the way the inner system dwarfs our planet. So it would seem like most wars would either be about claiming a place mostly intact as the only desired option, or intended to force them to migrate away, at least for space habitats. Civil wars inside those habitats, though, would be an obvious exception, as would inside planet fixed structures like domes and arcologies, or civil wars inside megametropolis city states. In our episode Extragalactic Sanctuaries, we discussed a situation where the solar system had become a roughly Kardashev II civilization. In which the whole place is so festooned with power collectors and space habitats that most of the sun's light is powering it and that's two billion times the amount of light Earth gets, so we tend to assume a population a billion times what it currently is, or even more. In that situation we posited an example where a space tower ecology on Venus, a skyscraper tens of thousands of stories high, and wider than a modern scraper, and probably home to hundreds of millions, has enough people to dispatch its own colony fleet to an unsettled star, and thousands of years later, this transplanted civilization has grown to many billions or trillions itself, and sends pilgrims back to their own arcology, their motherland. By this time, which I believe we said was the 40th millennium, our own solar system is beyond colonized, and that arcology on Venus is just a fly speck on a large planet that itself is just a dot, albeit an important one, in a greater solar civilization. They feel unwelcomed and they feel their homeland, that arcology, has been twisted away from the culture which once had it, so they invade that arcology. That's an interstellar invasion where the cost to move troops and resources would be insane especially in the context of sending thousands of massive battleships and cruisers and billions of troops. All those fleets and troops would be immense to that arcology and to modern Earth, yet still an unthreatening caravan in the eyes of that massive and disunified solar civilization. So they invade down that tower and its tens of thousands of floors, each probably the size of a modern metropolis, and they're doing in-city fighting where both sides are trying to avoid damaging the place, fighting level to level over centuries, where both sides are probably getting huge infusions of resources and manpower from outside. Their invasion would be akin to one of the many nations that claims to be a successor of the Greco-Roman civilization of antiquity deciding to invade the Vatican, and with the intent of not damaging any of the buildings there or in Rome itself, or maybe someone trying to seize the Great Pyramids claiming the current owners weren't legitimate. And that sounds crazy to us but crazier reasons have been given as Cassus Belli to invade, and in a civilization where radical life extension is possible, it's entirely plausible the people who helped build and pay for it originally and lived there were still alive millennia later and found out the place had been taken by outsiders while they were off colonizing the galaxy and now they're coming to take it back. Mostly from people born centuries after the invasion, but some of the invaders might still be alive and respected founders and leaders too. In the eyes of the civilization around them, it might be viewed as justified if they're willing to pay the Whale Guild to win it back. Indeed, it's likely in a Dyson swarm of quadrillions of O'Neill cylinders, each home to around a million folks, that people would seize them from their owners, and often successfully. Even if their takeover wasn't sympathetic to their neighbors, many might say, including the wider government, that the cost to deal with it in money and lives is too much and the Bundy standoff in Nevada in 2014 or the Autonomous Zone in Portland in 2020 are a couple of more modern examples of disputes where that may have been a factor in what actions were taken and when. Our own history is full of examples of that. Situations where the actions can be viewed as diplomatic or cowardly or pragmatic compromises, depending on the eye of the beholder, often clouded by a debated and cloudy history of events recent and distant, that make right and wrong harder to clearly see though in their case it would probably be a matter of digitally recorded and backed up history of the entire planning and construction and habitation of that space tower or habitat, and quite possibly with many of the people who designed, built, or bought it still being alive centuries later, not just their descendants. I would cite that as our last case for such internal conflicts though, because upward mobility or a feeling that you, as an individual or group, don't have the option for upward mobility is definitely a common cause for civil wars even if it's usually a background motivation, not the official or even conscious one. In a civilization where nobody is dying of old age or they're living many centuries, I could see that being way worse. You and a few thousand other folks built a big space habitat suburb to orbit Earth, and raise your families and it was a struggle of a lifetime to get that funding and permits and cooperation, and by the time it was done, many of you were already having great-grandchildren. But you were also still having children yourselves, because you're biologically immortal. The place is filling up and that's okay because there's plenty more habitats you can build, even those adjacent to the one you have now, which could be reached by a quick tether train. It isn't hard to imagine that a few hundred years later, when the population has grown from a few thousand to a few million, that there might be a lot of tension between the majority of the founders and their loyalist relatives or sponsored immigrants, and the folks who are more youthful and more numerous who felt otherwise, and that might include some founder or wealthy immigrants who bought bits from other founders who did die or just moved away. Civil wars are often phrased as brother versus brother, but often this is father vs son, and here it's brother vs brother and grandfather, and nobody has a motive to blow the place up, so one can definitely imagine levels of escalation. Seems like in the grim darkness of the future there's going to be plenty of war, but everything is relative and there's a lot of room for non-violent options too, especially in civil wars where the lands you're wrecking and the buildings you're trashing are your own, that win or lose you're going to have to fix, and I do tend to think a civilization populated with semi-immortal people with centuries of life behind them would be slower to anger and quicker to step back and take a deep breath when things started getting heated so I am optimistic that while the future will see more and bloodier wars than anything we've ever witnessed, it will still be vastly more peaceful in a relative sense than any society that's ever existed, simply because they are so much vaster. So it's time for our Audible Audiobook of the Month, and while there's a lot of great novels and series covering military science fiction and civil wars, from classics like Robert Highland's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress to the breathtaking novels and TV show The Expanse, when it comes to the sheer epic scale of conflicts and civil wars, nobody beats the Warhammer 40,000 series, The Horus Heresy, finally getting ready to wrap up after 50 novels of galactic civil war and the 8 novel battle for the solar system and Earth, which illustrates the brutality and chaos of such an epic battle like nothing else. And every one of those stories, starting with Dan Abnett’s Horse Rising, is available on Audible, the home of storytelling. Audible has thousands of books and literally centuries worth of content for you to pick from, and more being added every day, fashion you could listen to all of it but they don't just have audiobooks, they also have many excellent podcasts, such as Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, where we have every single episode on YouTube, plus several audio-only exclusives I've made over the years. That's just some of the great content in the Audible Plus catalog, which also has sleep and meditation tracks available, as well as guided fitness programs, and Audible Originals like Neil Gaiman's Sandman Act 3. The whole Audible Plus catalog full of free books and other content comes as a bonus when you join Audible, for you to stream or download to listen to anywhere and any when. In addition to the usual one free title a month and great member discounts, Audible's incredible selection makes it truly the home of storytelling, and listening to audiobooks lets you get more books into your life. Let Audible help you discover new ways to laugh, be inspired, or be entertained. New members can try it for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash Isaac or text Isaac to 500-500. That's audible.com slash Isaac or text Isaac to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash Isaac. So we were talking about colonies on Mars the Moon breaking away from Earth one day, and a critical part to any successful or independent space colony will be successfully making their own food. So next week we'll be looking at how we might do farming on Mars. Those environments might need some real adapting for humans to live in, or vice versa, for humans to adapt to them, and we'll be closing out the year by exploring the future of transhumanism and humanity. Before then, though, we'll discuss whether or not our universe might be a black hole, as some believe and also if it might be possible to live inside black holes. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help support future episodes, please visit our website, IsaacArthur.net, for ways to donate, or become a show patron over at Patreon. Those and other options, like our awesome social media forums for discussing futuristic concepts, can be found in the links in the description.